0: Save the day, October 15th, Farmers Bank & Trust presents Oktoberfest on the line. You won't want to miss it. Exclusive beer garden with premium tasting flights, gourmet hot dogs, sauerkrauts and mustards, kindergarten with a bouncy house and face painting and other kids' activities. There will also be local vendors, a German car show and more. Live entertainment with local performers including the Texarkana Regional Chorale and Grammy Award winning polka band Brave Combo. Kids 12 and under are free. Saturday, October 15th is Oktoberfest on the line. Hello and welcome to On the Line. I'm Carl Richter. Christina Rivas-Jones is director of 100 Families Alliance, a new project of the Literacy Council of Miller and Bowie Counties. 100 Families seeks to coordinate services available to families in crisis. And as you'll hear, there are already some local success stories. Gazette reporter Mallory Wyatt joined me. In talking to Christina about how 100 Families works, why she felt called to take on the job, how her personal background prepared her for it, and more. Here's our conversation with Christina Rivas-Jones. Hi, Christina. Welcome to the studio. How are you?
1: I am wonderful. Thank you for having me.
0: Sure. Here with us, too, is Mallory Wyatt, Gazette reporter. Hi, everyone. So, first of all, foremost, tell us about the 100 Families Alliance. What's it all about?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, uh, we, Jenny Walker, the director of uh, Literacy Council, and myself, were really excited to be able to bring this down here to our area. Um, today actually marks 11 months that I've been in this position. So, not quite a year. And it's amazing all that's been able to be accomplished just in this year, um, or, or 11 months, rather, uh, through community collaboration and 100 families it actually started by governor asa hutchinson in 2015 as shortly after he took office as a way to address the growing number of people going into incarceration in arkansas and how that was being mirrored by children going into foster care so it only makes sense if parents are getting locked up there's no place for the children to go and it was really an epidemic throughout the state, and he really wanted to address that. So a task force got together, and um, ultimately the 100 Families Initiative is what was birthed through that. It started in uh, 2019 in actual practice, and that was in Sebastian County, Arkansas, which is the Fort Smith area. And in that year alone, by using this collaborative case management model that we use before they started only 43% of children that were in foster care were being reunited with their families. So chances are if your child had been taken through um, some sort of DHS matter, what have you, or if you were going into a prison or jail for any significant mm-hmm. amount of time, you probably were not going to get your child back or children back. Mm-hmm. And in 2019, comes. They start this model. This was the only thing that was different in the entire county. Uh, After one year, 82% of children were being reunited with their families. And so we're not talking just a handful of children here. It's almost twice as much, and it's directly due to the fact that this model was put into place and that community organizations were given the the outlet and the infrastructure to be able to communicate between each other more um, effectively.
0: So it's really all about collaborative action. You're, you're coordinating lots of different services.
1: Yes. And so through this locally and throughout the state of Arkansas, we're not recreating any services. We're just harnessing the power of what's already out there because we know here in Texarkana, we have wonderful, wonderful people with great service minded hearts. Everyone is doing awesome things, but we're all seeing the same people. So it, just if you think about it, makes sense that we should all be talking to each other while we serve the same population, and that's exactly what our model does. Is it provides that background infrastructure, and we do it through a cloud-based platform that allows uh, families to be onboarded, and, and our whole goal right now is to try to create as many intake points as possible throughout the community where people in crisis go. So we have case managers at the Literacy Council. Uh, we're also working with the probation offices on both sides of the line, and they've been amazing with. Uh, integrating into this model with us for some of their probationaries. Uh, We have lots of other nonprofits and volunteer organizations that are serving in a case manager capacity. Texarkana College has been really supportive as well. And um, because we know when someone is in crisis, they're not just looking for one place to go. They're going to go where it's familiar to them and who they trust.
0: So what are some of the groups that uh, you're working with? Mentioned. to you yes,
1: we have a great relationship with Texarkana College, um, a wonderful relationship with Salvation Army. Um, our case managers have facilitated relationships with the housing authorities on both sides of the state line. Lots of churches. Uh, we have some apartment complexes on board now. Um, over, over total, we have 50 alliance partners. Um, and that's just been within six months that we've actually been in practice because we just kicked this off. Like went live back in the spring. So we're right at about six months. We've grown into over 50 partners. Now, some of those partners do not provide a direct service, and that's okay. In order to be what we call an alliance member, we it's anybody that's in support of what we're doing of this model and of working collectively for the benefit of families in crisis in our area. So at one point in time, you may not be able to help someone directly with food insecurity or having their lights cut off, what have you. But you may know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody. And so it's all using that power of just our, our own personal networking and then our community networking as well. So kind of um, jumping off of that, what brought you to nonprofit work? Uh, that would be the very persuasive Jenny Walker, executive director of the Literacy Council. <laughs> so she and I have an interesting story. Uh, we actually met uh, almost five years ago at – uh, Texas A&M Texarkana, when we were put together and tasked with creating a brand new department for students they were transferring in from other institutions. Uh, most of them were non-traditionals. A lot of them had the same experiences and backgrounds that the students we have now do, and especially the families that we work with that are in crisis. They were experiencing the same struggles. So we... Now looking back, I like to say that our work there at the university, it was all a pilot for what we're doing now, just on a much smaller scale. Um, and when she took over the Literacy Council in the height of the pandemic, uh, which was a feat all into itself, you know, she and I had had conversations because of the relationship that we built. And we knew that, that we wanted to do bigger work on a, on a grander scale where we had a little more oversight of things. And um, so we were just kind of waiting for the right opportunity. So I I knew at some point I was going to join her so that we could continue our work together, but we never knew it was going to be led in this direction or in this capacity uh, because we're both very passionate about education and educating adults as well as for the benefit of the children that are in those adults' care. Um, And then she found out about 100 families through a, a conference that she attended for the state of Arkansas called me while she's on vacation with her kids and her husband, and you can hear, like, go-karts in the background, and she's like, hey, listen, don't mind all of that noise back there, but I heard about this. I got to tell you about it. She, like, gave me her five-minute elevator pitch. I was like, okay, I'm in. Let's do this. Like, what do we got to do? And so that was last summer in about May, June. And we started working on it, researching um, like on my lunch breaks and evenings, weekends, we were working on it. We were co- connecting with the folks in Little Rock, the leadership team there. Um, it's really funny because there were times when I would go on my lunch break, sit in my car and be on a Zoom with them over there just so we could learn, like, how can we do this? How can we make this happen? And then, of course, the issue of how am I going to have a (laughs) salary because I have all this stability myself. And our whole point was to work with families that don't have stability yet. I'm leaving a very stable employment opportunity. And I loved it there at the university and they've been great partners for us too. But we just kind of knew if we don't do this, knowing all the information that we know, and we know that it's out there, we're doing a disservice to our community by just holding this knowledge.
0: So tell us about some of your success stories, who, who wow. have you worked with so far.
1: We have worked, uh, some of our clients, just most recently, last Friday, so a week now, we had a client move into her apartment. And this is a client that came to us through a local employer. It was actually uh Callum and Carney, which they've been a really big supporter as well. Um, they reached out to Jenny because they had met this woman through an interview process. And throughout the interview, it one of the questions just kind of led to the fact that she was homeless. They were not violating any rights or anything like that, but it just came out and, um, and the representative called Jenny and he said, Hey, I know what y'all are doing. And I know that this person can really benefit from what you're doing. I really want to hire her, but I know she's homeless and I don't, am I going to do her a disservice if I hire her and not, you know, make sure that she finds stability there. And so Jenny's like, okay, and we got her in touch with our case manager, and everything started rolling pretty pretty quickly. So within the matter of six weeks, uh, we were able to get her back into Salvation Army because she had previously been there. But because she didn't have children with her right now, they had to make room for, for a family with children, which we totally understand. And so for about six months, she's been living in abandoned buildings throughout town, oh. in parks, and but every day going to the library, filling out job applications. And she is... Definitely an example of situational poverty. I mean, we do work with people that have substance abuse um, backgrounds or coming out of incarceration, people that have experienced a lot of trauma and, you know, maybe not made the best decisions that have led them to the certain circumstance. Uh, but that wasn't the case for her. She was the caregiver of her family and she has moved all over the country. She's been classically trained in many things and, and very bright and just a, a really a joy to be around. And she ended up down here because um, it was a friend from another area that she came, came down with this friend, they got sick and then they ended up passing away and she had no one here. No, and she had just been taking care of them. They had been paying all of the bills and, Knew no one, had no way to even get out of here. And so that's sometimes things that we don't think about is people in those situations can't even get out. Like geographically, she couldn't even get out. And so she just did what she thought she needed to do. And she went to the Salvation Army and she stayed as long as she could. But understood that, you know, this is a place where families take priority. And that was, you know, she bears no hard feelings toward them. And she'd been going on interview after interview after interview for months and months and then never get a call back until she got this interview there at Coleman and Carney. And so by that night, we had a place for her to stay. She had already received a housing voucher. But the thing with housing vouchers, and they are great, but it is so specific with who can take that voucher. We work really closely with the university and the interns there, and we had two interns that called every complex in the all of the county, not even just Texarkana, but all of the county, and we only found two apartments. And it took them almost two weeks wow. to find two complexes that even take that specific voucher. Right. They participate and, and in that specific program. They procedure.
0: can just refuse to yes. correct.
1: Yes. Yeah. There's no, you know, yeah. there's nothing legally requiring you to accept this voucher. Yeah. So she had this voucher, which was about to expire when we met her. But our case manager called the Council of Governments, and they were able to extend it for one more month. She had already gotten one extension on it. And because of the relationship we've built with them and explained how we're working with them, we've done um, some other things with them up until that point. And they said, okay. We can do 30 more days, but we've, you know, after 30 days, she's going to have to start the process over. And so our team of interns and then our case manager, and, you know, we're all making calls, found two apartment complexes, but then one of those complexes decided that they were not going to take that voucher. So we were down to one complex that had one unit available. Wow. And so we thought, oh, great. But then, it's a $400, dollar, three or $400 service fee just for the paperwork. Right. Then it's another $400 deposit. Then you have your electrical deposit and your water deposit. We were looking at close to $1,000. Right.
0: Just to move in.
1: Just to move in, just to use the voucher. Right. So, you know, when you think about it logically, if she had $1,000 in her pocket, she wouldn't need to be doing all of these things <laughs> right. and so we're trapping people in these situations and uh you know we're we're a small non-profit and uh, many of the people in our alliance are you just don't have money for that and as much as we want to just like pass the hat and find this money we'll have to do it again next week and next week and next week and so we really engaged our community partners and we were able to get money together to pay you know in stages as things would come along okay this is what we have to do next what we have to do next the utility companies have been really great uh with allowing certain payment plans to be done because this whole time she got the job yeah and they hired her and she was still living at Salvation Army she was taking the bus every day and they were making sure she was getting back on time and you know they were allowing her to come in because Salvation Army has strict time limit so you can leave and stay they were allowing her to come and pass that curfew because they knew she was working and but even still she is a few weeks before she gets a check and then that's her whole check you know how is she supposed to save anything yeah so we were able to help her get all the money together and then the folks over at hr and column and carney fully furnished her apartment wow and so last friday and we felt, we did feel a little bad for this part. Uh, so uh, if you're listening, I won't say your name to, uh, yeah, keep your privacy. However, we do apologize for the little bit. <laughs> Of uh, antics that went on the last few days, because she was calling our case manager every day. She said, "I know it's supposed to move on Friday, but they keep telling me the key's not ready, and I really need a key. And I, I really, I mean, I would just like to go, and I'll just sleep on the floor. But, but all the while, we knew this was all being done. The apartment complex has was. Fantastic, and they let us get in early, and and Colin McCartney get in early the night before to set everything up, and then of course um, her manager there uh, (laughs) knew everything and, and was really instrumental in it, and so we were able to be there inside when they brought her in, and you know to welcome her into her to her new home, and she even had friends that she had made in the short while from from her work come as well. And they brought her gifts and the complex brought her gifts. And um, after we left uh, her, her boss there was going to take her to Salvation Army to get her things. And and none of this would be possible right. without our community partners. So it was really incredible to be in that moment and see like, this is population level change. Um, That's our most recent story. And if you have time for another one, I have a really good one too. I just have a quick question. Mm -hmm. Um, So just whole, I guess, compilations Mm -hmm. of you helping this woman. I know you said it was an incredible moment, but what feelings does that bring you? Me? Yeah. It, It really just drives me forward to say, we've got to shed more light on this. And I know people say the systems are broken. The systems are broken. But it's up to us to fix those systems we can't just sit around just like last year or, or 18 months ago rather when jenny and i heard about this if we would have just said wow that's great that's really impressive and then just kept on it's not going to do any good and so same same with with these kind of things when you, we learn about how these systems are broken you can't just say oh that's that's really bad and move on with your life it just it just changes you, I guess, being in it day to day. And also just with my personal life, it's really hard to have a bad day when you are working directly with with people that are in these true crisis and things that probably would have really set me off before or, mm-hmm. you know, what have you. It's like it, it doesn't. It's so insignificant when you look at the bigger picture. And so really with these experiences and like last Friday, it all, I mean, it feels great. And I know that she is very worthy, but everyone that we're working with is very worthy, regardless of their background. The people that you're working with, um, there's typically, they're typically part of a population that um, receive a lot of, I guess, untoward behavior. And there's a lot of misconceptions. Um, Do you want to, Maybe shed some light on Yes, misconceptions. Alberta. Absolutely. So this is my favorite thing to talk about. So we, with the model that we use, it's deeply rooted in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So anybody with an education background or, or has ever heard, we like to call him our good pal Maslow because he really had it right. But we have this great graphic that we use. It's the pyramid. So in, the, in your hierarchy of needs, at the very bottom are your basic needs. And that's what our model follows. We, we evaluate our clients in 13 areas. So we're not just talking about, you know, where are you living? How are you eating? Do you have a job? You know, those are kind of what people would think are the most important things, especially with people coming out of incarceration. The very first thing they're told is you got to have a job. Well, in our in Maslow and in our pyramid that we use, our framework, employment, education, financial management is at the very top. And we're looking at things like your mental health, your physical health, your dental health, because those all affect your daily well-being, food. Shelter, safety, that's at the very bottom. So every single one of our families are evaluated there. If they are in a crisis in any of those areas, that's where we automatically start. And then we move up the ladder. Child care, transportation, education. Do you have your high school diploma? You may not have it right now, but you also may be fleeing a domestic violence issue. So it doesn't make sense for us to get you enrolled in a GED program when you're trying to make sure that you and your kids are safe tonight. Same with employment. You can get a job just like this, the woman that I was speaking about. She got a job, but she didn't know where she was going to lay her head at night or how she was going to eat. So how can she be, how can anybody be a good employee when they don't know what's going to happen at the end of the day? And so just taking it all the way back to base level and making sure that we're looking at those things. And so people typically, you know, Like you say, they get mislabeled as being lazy or, oh, they just want to live off the system. The system is not great and is definitely (laughs) not something that I would recommend living off of, you know. So every single person that we have encountered, we we worked with another uh, young lady that we met through the Bowie County Women's Center. She had been um, given the option to either go to prison or go to the recovery center. She was 20 years old. She was pregnant. She didn't even find out she was pregnant until she went into the center. That was the first medical care she had received in who knows how long. She had been doing meth since she was 12 years old. Oh, my God. Because that's what her parents did. Mm. That was just the way of life. She knew no better. So just like, you know, our parents teach us, brush your teeth every night, make your bed, you know, these things. She was doing drugs from a very young age. And okay. so she she knew nothing else and ends up getting incarcerated, but through the work of the Women's Recovery Center and them connecting with us, and she completed the program. She found out she was pregnant there, and that was kind of what she needed to see that not everybody lives like this. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. And as we got to know her and work with her, all the while, she's in the Women's Recovery Center. So we would go there, or we would, they would bring her to us, and, and it, we have a really great relationship with them. She really like just latched onto our case manager and started to share more things. And so we learned that when she had her baby, when she had her baby a week after she completed the program, during that time we were able to secure a place for her to live. Uh, there's a wonderful organization in town called Grace House that's through, through uh, Church on the Rock. Their whole mission is to take young women in that specific situation, similar circumstances, that have small children or are pregnant, and just teach them how to be a mother. Something that you would think, oh, your instincts kick in. Well, the instincts of this girl's mother was to teach her how to do meth. Right. Instead of fractions. And so we... That was such a great day when she was able to be picked up from Women's Recovery Center, go to Grace House. They We kind of got gifts together for her. We had wonderful people donate all these cute outfits. And then the, the ladies at our office are just looking through everything, and she was so overjoyed. She had her baby. And when she left that hospital, was wheeled out of St. Michael's, which she was very adamant she wanted to have, her baby at St. Michael's she's not from here, but she knew that that was the Catholic hospital and she just really had felt a deep connection, um, you know, religiously from being at the women's center and she really wanted to have her baby at, at God's hospital Mm -hmm. and they wheeled her out. And in that moment she broke a generational cycle. She broke a generational curse because she was the first woman ever as far back as generations goes that she can remember, they got to leave the hospital with their baby. Mm. Oh my gosh! Something that we all just take for granted. Right. I was telling this story not too long ago. You know, if, you, if you've ever taken your first baby home from the hospital, you're yelling at your husband because he's driving too fast. <laughs> and just slow down. You don't have to get there so quickly. And like my husband, he's... <laughs> He he loves it. I tell this story. When our first daughter was born, we were in Louisiana, and he he pinched her leg with (laughs) with the car seat thing, you know. So those are all the things that you expect to happen and and all of that. But that was never in her family story. They never had those stories. So she was able to be wheeled out holding her baby, and that's so powerful. So that just speaks to, you know— Instead of labeling people a certain way, oh, you're in this situation because of the decisions that you made, so this is what you deserve, she had no control over that whatsoever because the people that were supposed to be looking out for her, her own parents, weren't doing that. And who knows what they learned. So now we're getting into where it's those learned behaviors. We're so far, you know, through these generations to where I'm not going to say that, That there aren't people out there abusing the system, because I know there are. I'm not naive to all of that. But if you take the time to actually learn about people's backgrounds and why they're in the situations that they're in, you know, we're coming to find it is truly situational things, generational curses. I know that was a very long answer to your question.
0: No, (laughs) it's great. Thanks for (laughs)
1: expanding on it.
0: Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. You're from Texarkana. Uh,
1: well, I'm not from here, but I claim it. I've uh, been here most of my life. We yeah. came here in the um, in the mid '80s, and um, the reason that all of this that I'm so passionate about all of it is because I'm first generation removed from generational poverty. When my parents moved here, we um, we came from South Texas. My father got a job here. My grandfather lived here, and he got my father a job. We came up. I was a toddler. My mother was pregnant with my sister. It was February. We were freezing cold, from what I understand. And we lived in a travel trailer in my grandfather's backyard. And my mom has this baby and takes her back to this travel trailer in February in Texarkana. We know no one except for my grandfather that (laughs) lives in the house and in his family. And my dad goes to work. And um, throughout the course of... My life in general, I'm a product of people stepping in in the community, stepping in early on. When my dad had this job uh, with the school district, the librarian was right across the hall from him. And she found out how we were living, which you would have never known by the way that he carried himself and and how hard of a worker he was. But somehow she found out she was like, this is unacceptable.
0: Yeah.
1: We live right down the street. So my dad worked at Pine Street. Uh, Mm. I'll never forget it. I'm so happy that they're going to redo it. Yeah. But. She lived on a property with her and her mother. Her mother had the house in the front. She had the house in the back, but they owned the house next door. This two-bedroom, like maybe a 1,000-square-foot little house in Beverly. And she said, you're going to move your family here. Oh. And we're going to charge you. I think my mom told me it was either 200 or $250 a month. That was the rent. And that was a stretch. Like that was hard for mm-hmm. my parents to do. I mean, it was the 80s. And then in the summertime, they wouldn't charge my parents rent for one month so that they could take that money and we could drive back down to South Texas in our two-door Chevy Cavalier. It's like a big tin bucket. That was the first car I ever drove. All my, my sister and my brother, that was our first car that we all, we all had to drive it. By then there, the radio didn't work or anything. But, but we lived there in that house in Beverly. Like you could see the McDonald's from it. It was right by the price low. I remember walking there with my mom. I remember when it was so cold and it snowed one winter and my dad and I walked all the way down to video giant in the snow. Like I remember all of those things and we never knew my sister, and my brother and I never knew what kind of situation, you know, that it was looking back because of, you know, the way my parents really pushed forward and they were outside people that helped them along that journey. And so really I feel like this is my way to give, to give back, to give, you know, just pass on all the blessings that I had never even knowing that they were blessings. Um, My parents are both educated they both graduated high school throughout the years my father got his degree and his master's degree and he uh, has hours towards a doctorate degree he's been a professor at Texarkana College for 27 years oh. um, so Texarkana has been great for us but those struggles that they had I never had to have yeah now did I do stupid things yes you know <laughs> we all do but and those are things that my kids and my nieces and nephews are never going to have to experience because of that so when you have those What can seem from the outside, from one person just doing that one little something, they say, oh, this is just something small that I can do on the receiving end. It's a huge impact. And it truly changed the generations, you know, through me and my my siblings and for our kids to come.
0: I I read you got a degree in nuclear medicine. Yes. (laughs) You were going to be a radiologist?
1: Uh, No. So nuclear medicine is part of radiology. Uh And, um I actually, when I graduated, I moved to Louisiana, and that's where our our daughter Sawyer was born, was while we were in Louisiana. But I worked for an interventional cardiologist. I ran her nuclear medicine lab. And uh, I loved it. And I, what I did is I worked with people to evaluate their hearts. I, mm-hmm. I only was in cardiology and I did these exams to see if they needed to have a heart cath, they needed to have open heart surgery, uh, bypass, what have mm-hmm. you. And it was great. But then after we had the baby and the whole leg pinching incident, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we gotta go home. I need my mom. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, I was there for about five years and then we came home yeah. and uh yeah and I stayed in nuclear medicine a little bit and in medicine in general I worked um at Wadley in um in marketing time and and I loved it and it was great but I just was kind of getting to that point where I was so far removed from my patient care because I love working directly with with patients and uh, I just kind of felt like I feel like I'm stalling out a little bit and, and I'm not fully in it and not to to anybody's fault, the hospital is great. Uh, so I took this chance and I applied for this job at A and M because I, I heard A and M had good benefits and a good working culture, and I thought, you know, let's let's try something different. And I really thought I had no chance because I've never worked with students, I've never been in higher ed, I don't have that kind of experience. But it was the program was labeled as uh, working with students that are transferring in. Which I was like, oh, I, I'm a transfer student. I transferred a few times, more than I probably would like to admit. And and it was also for um, minority, Hispanic and minority students. And I thought, okay, well, I could probably relate. And so I get in, I do the whole interview, and they called me back a few weeks later, offered me the job, and the whole time I'm thinking, I, I still don't know why they picked me. <laughs> like... I don't know how to work with students. And it wasn't until I really got in it. And then of course I met Jenny as fate would have it. And, um, and immediately, we just hit it off and realized that we are practically the same person. Our hearts are in the same place. Uh, we have similar backgrounds, and sometimes people mistake us for each other, which is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when I was pregnant at the university, and then I was on maternity leave, and somebody saw her and asked her how the baby was, <laughs> and thought that she's like, "It's not me that's pregnant." You're thinking of Christina. Um, but yeah, so working with the students once I got into it, I realized this is just like everything I've done. So, And in, in later on, you know, I finally got the nerve. After I knew that I was good and I wasn't going to get fired, I was like, <laughs> why did you even hire me for this? I don't feel like I really was qualified. They said, are you kidding? You've worked with patients all your, you know, you can yeah. build these relationships, you can do these things. You took this whole lab that uh, was on the brink of closure and you built it back up and got nationally accredited through all these agencies, all these things. I was like, oh. <laughs> I didn't realize skills
0: translate
1: <laughs> into higher education, but I loved it, and and uh, you know now now we just stepped out and are doing this, and it all kind of goes back to that when you have that knowledge, you got to share it. Yeah, you just have to.
0: Well, we're about out of time. Why don't you tell us how people can help you? Yes, and how people can access what you're doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I said before, anybody that's in support of what we're doing can be a part of the Alliance. Uh, We welcome you to follow our Facebook page. It's the 100 Families of uh, Bowie and Miller Counties on Facebook. You can join that group. It's an open group just so you know what's going on. We have monthly Alliance meetings every uh, last Friday of the month. That'll be a little different around the holidays, but our next one is October 28th at nine o'clock in the morning at the Office of the Literacy Council, which is at uh, 4010 Summerhill Road or right on the corner of Summerhill and 40th. Um, and really, just there are so many ways you can get involved. So if you work in a direct service organization that is not yet plugged into One Hundred families, excuse me, just reach out. We can definitely get you plugged in. We can train you to become a case manager. Or we can train you to use a system if you're not quite ready to take on all the case management responsibilities. Uh, we always need volunteers to help us with different things, and just, you know, helping us build our network through your own network. And then if you have families that are in immediate need of our assistance, they can give us a call at 903-255-7733. They can also message us through the Literacy Council's website or through our Facebook page, and we can get them in contact with our case management team, and they'll get them an appointment going and get them onboarded into um into the program
0: okay i'll put links to all that stuff yeah, in the in the show description thanks so much for spending some time with thank us. y'all for it's, having so, me seriously
1: you have such a interesting array of experiences it, so. it is and in there too i own my own business but we won't talk about that
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's another show
1: that is another show yes
0: <laughs> all right thanks so much and uh, good luck thank you On the line is a Texarkana Gazette podcast recorded in Star Bear Studio right here in downtown Texarkana, USA. Follow On the Line on Twitter at OTLTXK and on our website, TexarkanaGazette.com slash podcast. To support the show, post a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. The show is written Produced and edited by yours truly, Carl Richter. And I'd love to hear from you. Email me at krichter at texarcanogazette.com. I'll see you next time on the line.